Hey, get your Bibles out, and uh, let's dive into uh, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Let's take a little step further, and uh, I need a reader this morning. Who's feeling it? Anybody want to read for us this morning? I promise I won't make fun of you too bad. Anybody? Thank you. I see that hand in the back. Somebody just panicked and said, no, 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 I was waving to a friend. Because we're in uh, 2 Peter. Come on, Renee, you can pray for or read for us. Would you read for us? All right. See, that's what happens when you're related to the guy that's speaking. This is my wife, Renee, if you don't know her. How many of y'all knew Renee before this very second? Now everybody knows who you are, sweetheart. All right. We, uh, no, you don't need your Bible. You're going to read it off the screen. You don't need your glasses. They're going to be big words, all right? <laughs> I'm not what? I'm not making fun. I'm just, it's truth, all right? She'll set you free. All right. Before you read, all right, uh, let me talk about where we've been going and why we're doing this. Because uh, we started asking the question a few weeks ago. We said, uh, does anybody ever really change? Because all of us have internally this desire to change something. I mean, if you have straight hair, you may want curly hair. If you have curly hair, you may want straight hair. You know, if you're tall, you want to be short. If you're short, you want to be tall. I mean, we all have this dissatisfaction to where we'd love to change. But it's really rare that we ever see anybody really change. And so we started asking the honest question because, you know, when you come to church, you hear words like Jesus, Bible, you know, change. And you go, really, does it really happen? Like, is it possible? So we said, you know, if our mission statement here at Midtown is gospel transformation, then uh, where does that come from? So... Uh, we came to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, and we've been discovering the reality that not only does Jesus bring about change, Jesus, for those of us that are in Christ, has already brought about change. That, it, it's already happened. It is finished. It is done. What is that about? So, Renee, would you mind reading, please, sweetheart? Lovely heart of mine. Um, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Okay, can I stop you? Because what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is, uh, is that just a bunch of church talk? That he's given us everything we need for life and God, given, not he's going to give, given us everything we need for life and God. And we said, well, okay, we'll acknowledge in church that that's true. If that's true, then why do few of us live in this place? Remember, we talked about the homeless guy that was living on the streets of Utah, but he had actually inherited millions of dollars. And we talked about that uh, when somebody doesn't know they have something, then they're no better off than the person that has nothing. If you, if you, let me see if I can put this straight. The person who has no idea what they have is no different than the person who has nothing. So we talked about how do I begin to live out of the fact that I've been given everything I need for life and godliness? All you. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Okay, so what we said was, wow, 
the way I open my eyes, the way I come awake, the way that, you know, Scripture uses a lot of different analogies. You know, the way I do that is I participate with the divine nature. That the way I begin to see that I have everything I need for life and godliness is I participate with the divine. How do I participate with the divine? Okay, let me stop. So we said the way I, live, I participate with the divine is by faith. Faith is not heaven money, meaning I don't generate it and then give it to God, and God gives me everything I need for life and godliness because I gave him my faith. We actually talked about how faith comes from God. Faith is the first gift that he gives me. And then I use the gift that he's given me like arms to put my arms around all the other stuff that he's given me. But we get to participate with the faith now. We get to cooperate with the faith that God's given us. And the way we do that is we add to our faith goodness and... And to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You did a brilliant job. (laughs) Y'all don't know how good that is for me that y'all just applauded. You know, life is going to be great. Asking her on the spot to come up and read. You know, what's happening here is we've talked about that I add to my faith goodness, that, and we talked about that, and then we add knowledge to that goodness, and knowledge is not just information, it's also intimacy and relationship. I add to that knowledge self-control. Remember, we talked about we're, we're building walls around the city of our lives, so when insanity occurs, uh, there is self-control. Then we add to our self-control, what was the next one? Perseverance. We talked about that last week. And now we kind of take a different spin because it says add to your perseverance godliness. What is godliness? I mean, does that mean that we put on a God complex? We start acting like God? What does it mean? You know, another way that that word is translated is piety. That we are to put on piety. In other words, we are switching now in our journey of transformation from vertical now to horizontal. And we're going to be talking about horizontal for the next couple of weeks because all the things that we've been talking about right now is, has been my relationship with God. Now when it comes to piety, all of a sudden now I'm looking at you because piety has to do with how you see me. When you stand before the world, you know, or when you sit before the world, whatever it is that you do, what do people see? What is it that people see when they see you? Another way to put piety is this. What is your reputation? What is your character? What are the parts of you that people see and know about you? Scripture says that this is important. In 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3, you can listen too. 1 Timothy 3, it talks about leaders and how leaders need to be people of good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace, into the devil's trap. Ooh, 
What's the devil's trap? That's another sermon. Even in Proverbs, and this is a verse that parents love to quote to their children to make them feel guilty so they will obey, is even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct's pure and right. And you know what? We know that, don't we? We know that what we do says a lot about who we are. And so piety is talking about what kind of image are you working to project? Uh, I actually saw the, uh, what's the, uh, the name of the movie where everybody's uh, vampires and uh, werewolves? That's Twilight, Twilight. Uh, okay, and so you know the story that's, what's his name? Edward. He's such a hunk. <laughs> Nothing like a pale body. Uh, you know, and anyway, this week I saw on the back of the special edition People magazine on the very back page a 50-year-old woman that has had on her entire back the Twilight poster, movie poster, tattooed onto her back. Yes. Awesome. 50 years old. What do you think about a 50-year-old that is tattooing the pictures of 21-year-olds on their back? You think it says something about her? Yes. What does it say? That, too, is another sermon. We'll talk about that another time. You know what's funny is because uh, we could easily say about her, she doesn't care what people think. Matter of fact, all of us could probably label people that kind of have this, you know, oh, I don't care, you know, you know. And even as Christians, sometimes we can say, man, I'm living for the Lord. I don't care what anybody thinks about my life. Really? There are people like that. That's hard to believe for uh, me sometimes because I grew up in the South where in the South, what everybody thought about you was the most important thing you could possibly hang on to. Matter of fact, we were taught in the South the three steps of processing Friday nights. Are you familiar with this? You're so into image management. You're in the South, you're so into people thinking well of you. You're so into nobody can think ill of me. You know, you're so into your reputation, the three steps of Friday night. So you go into a party on Friday night. Step one. Think about every possible scenario that you could get into at that party on Friday night and think through the conversation and have it in your head before it happens in reality. Yes, step one. Step two, actually go to the party and try to make step one a reality. Step three, when you leave the party, obsess over everything that actually happened at the party. You know, another way to put it is it's kind of like the casserole syndrome. Uh, are you familiar with this? If somebody brings you a casserole, like, I've never made a casserole, but trust me, this happens, all right? If somebody brings you a casserole, then what are you obligated to do? Eat it. <laughs> I love, you must be from the north. Because in the south, if somebody brings you a casserole, you typically feel bound to bring them a casserole in return. That's why people throw surprise birthday parties. Believe it or not, don't let them fool you. They're throwing surprise birthday parties because their hope is when their birthday comes, you're going to throw one for them. They're investing in their own well-being. 
Is that what Peter's talking about here? Is he talking about image management? Is he talking about whatever you do look good? Is he talking about hiding your dirty little secrets so that you look better than you do? I mean, church is perfect at that. I mean, look around. I mean, we have the capability, even right here at Midtown, to look better than we really are, to smell better than we really do, to come across as more together than anybody in this room could possibly believe that we really are. Is that what Peter's talking about? Regardless of how much you're falling apart internally, regardless about the addictions in your life, regardless of the fears that you live with, and regardless of the poison that you're processing in your own internal being, when you get here, be nice. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. If that's what Peter is talking about, do you kind of do you ever do you ever kind of burp and it it kind of turns into more of a substance burp to where something actually starts to travel up your throat, you know? And then you real uh, and you catch it right at, and then it has this taste of like digested food that's been in your belly for a week. Do you know what I'm talking about? You all know what I'm talking about, you know? Was that throw up or what was that? Was that, no, it really, nothing came out, so that wasn't really throw up. It was kind of the, what was it? It was just kind of the nasty, just kind of unexpected pleasures of grossness. That's what that tastes like. If that's what Peter's talking about, image management, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Because it just smells rotten, doesn't it? You know, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, he even says, if I am seeking to gain the approval of men, he puts it in contrast with being able to seek the approval of God. He says you can't seek them both. So if Paul is that adamant about, no, it's not about image management, then what is it really about? Jesus even said to the Pharisees, do you remember this? Where he said, you look better than anybody. Matter of fact, your good deeds are so amazing that you out good deed everybody. Your reputation is stellar. But he said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. Somebody's polished you all up. But on the inside is dead man's bones. He even says in Revelations chapter 3, Jesus is talking to the church in Sardis. And he says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Wow. What a great reputation to have until you hear the next sentence, but you are dead. The next words are profound. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up to what? We have a good reputation. Everybody likes us. Everybody thinks we're great. We've got it all together. People come to me with questions, you know? And Jesus and Peter and Paul are saying, wake up. We'll wake up to what? What is piety then? It's being fully alive people. It's being authentic people. It's being honest people. It's people that live their lives without hiding. Let me explain. In this journey of the gospel, there are two things that are going to happen if you let them happen. One is you will begin to understand the depth of your need for grace. Guess what? The more you grow in the gospel the more you're going to grow in understanding how bad you really are. Guess what? Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. 
Because let me tell you something that's true about you because it's true about me. We love to deceive ourselves. We love to convince ourselves we're better than we are. The more you get to Jesus and Jesus is about truth, the more you're going to discover how much you need him. But when we discover that, we also begin to discover the heights in which his grace has fallen on us and forgiven us and changed us and set us free. So two things are happening when I'm growing in the Lord. Man, I'm growing in this, oh, what a wretched man that I am. But I'm also growing in what an amazing God he is. That's why John Newton, you know, he's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He uh, ran slaves. He was a ship captain. Killed people. I mean, he was brutal. He understood the depth of his own depravity. And yet, when God came in and rescued him from that, when his ship was about to wreck, you know, it's a long story, it's a glorious story. He wrote the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. A wretch. Are we wretches? Well, you got to say yes. I mean, you're at church. Come on. I mean, you know. But, I mean, when we live our lives, what do we live our lives? We live our lives, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, come on, I brought you a casserole. What's the big deal, you know? Okay. So I want to take us on a quick journey of what it means to live in piety. And uh, men, I'm about to pick on you, okay, because you're guinea pigs this morning. Because I'm going to talk about how messed up you really are. So, women, just glory in this. I'm turning to, uh, to help me this morning to a book called The Silence of Adam. Men, if you've never read this book, you ought to put it on your reading list. Uh, I'd like to see every man in our church read this book. It's by Larry Crabb, but it was also co-written by a guy you guys might know, Al Andrews, who uh, runs counseling ministry here in, ta- here in town. <laughs> Remember... Piety is being fully alive, being fully authentic, being honest men. So in their book, The Silence of Adam, uh, Al, I'm going to let him get the credit because I know him. I don't know Larry. I mean, who is he anyway? No, I'm Sorry, Larry. Uh, they talk about the three marks of a dead man, the three marks of an unauthentic man, the three marks of a man who has no life. The first mark is... He is a controlling man. Listen to how they describe this. An unmanly man controls. He controls conversations. He manipulates family and friends. He arranges his life to avoid whatever he is not sure he can handle. He trusts no one. Not deeply. He works hard to maneuver himself into a favorable light into a position where he comes out on top or at least unchallenged. He is not a good listener. He rarely asks meaningful questions, preferring either to offer opinions or remain quiet. No one feels pursued by him except when their friendship might work to his advantage. When he does take an interest in you, it has the feel of a car salesman asking to see a picture of your family. The first mark of an unalive man is that he is a controlling man. Controlling men hate these kind of words. These are the words you will never hear come out of the mouth of a controlling man. I don't know. Because they never want to put themselves in a situation to where they don't have the knowledge to know how to control the situation or they give the appearance that they don't have the answer to a question. 
Another word that a controlling man hates to say is the word help. Because they want to control their situations to where they never need help. It's a funny thing about a controlling man when it says here that he never listens. The reason he doesn't listen is because he can't risk a conversation going in the direction that he doesn't know how to handle. The other day, I was with a guy that I just met for the first time. And, uh, man, I'm telling you that this guy, when I say he talked the whole conversation, I mean, it was like a steamroller. Like, he was talking 100 miles a minute. And every time that I, I tried to, if you ever try to jump into a conversation, you just take a breath, dude. I'm just, please, I'm, you know, just be quiet. Eat something, you know, take a drink. Give me a chance to get in here that every chance I tried to get in there, he just rolled over whatever I was saying and just started talking even louder. Our conversation ended with this. Okay, man, great talking to you. See you later. I didn't say a word. A controlling man. Good friend of mine now, when I first met him, uh, he's really an interesting guy because if you look at him, man, he's, tall and he's handsome and he you know he just he exudes wealth and just has all his everything's together I mean uh it's an amazing thing like he drives an SUV you know and you know had satellite radio before anybody else had satellite radio and just you know he just had it all together and was funny and had kids but he didn't his SUV didn't smell like French fries, you know. I mean, how he pulled that one off, I don't know. But everything was together. And we went to lunch for the very first time. We're sitting there talking, and, and he's like, man, order whatever you want. Lunch is on me. And, you know, we're going to one of those places that the rest of us don't go to for lunch because, you know, it just we don't make that much in a week. And so we're eating lunch, and I look across the table at him, and I said, Hey, bro, I just have a simple question for you. Do you really have it together as much as you want everybody to think you have it together? I thought, I was just making conversation. Like, your image works, dude. Like, how do you do this? Like, are you really this together? And his lip started to quiver, and his head hung, and he began to weep in in this restaurant. He completely lost control simply because someone dared to peek around the mask and say, who are you really? Because at the heart of a man that wants to control is a desire for power. And the reason he wants power is because he, he is terrified by the prospects of being powerlessness, having no power whatsoever very inauthentic. So what does the gospel have to say to that inauthentic man? It's a beautiful thing because the gospel says your desire for power, guess what? It's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, it's a good thing. Your desire for power is like God's thumbprint on your life from the fall. It's like God put his image on you in the Garden of Eden and your desire for power is legitimate. But Jesus says, just like when he talked about leadership and he said, if somebody wants to be first, There's nothing wrong with that. There's just a better way to do it, and that is to be a servant. That if you want to lead, that you do it by serving. Jesus is saying, so you desire power. Let me bring you into the ultimate power. 
Because at the cross, when Christ forgave me for my sins and he brought me into this newness of life, one of the things when he says he's given me everything I need for life and godliness, one of those things is power. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open so that we would see the riches are, that are ours and his, the hope that is ours and his, and the power. The power. And he says the power that, is, that we have access to is the same power that rose Christ from the dead. So the journey of being authentic for the controlling man is that we stand over here and going, oh yeah, I'm controlling. Let me tell you something, girls, about every guy in this room. We all have what I just described. We are all more controlling than we want you to know. And guess what, girls? So are you. Yes, it's all in us. And so what happens to the authentic person? The authentic person goes, oh, yeah, I'm that. Oh, it's worse than you can imagine. Oh, yeah, I like to control. I like to be in control. Oh, yeah, I get terrified when I step into situations that I don't know how to control. I so want to control. I just want to find people in my life that I can tell them how to behave when they're around me. That's how much I want to control. I repent of that. I repent because a life with Christ is dependent upon him, not fearfully trying to control every situation so that I never get exposed for what I am. Powerless. Let's keep going. It gets better. The next step of an of a unauthentic man is he is a destructive man. His words and his actions harm people. Though co-workers may feel encouraged and challenged for a time, sometimes a long time, family members feel the harm sooner, soonest and most deeply, but are sometimes too scared to admit it even to themselves. Often the veneer of goodness and affability is so thick that the harm is felt only with a cumulative power that slowly destroys, like small traces of poison in drinking water. Sometimes he actively hurts people with sarcasm and meanness, occasionally with violence. More often, the damage is done by indifference and retreat, the kind of weapons that make you feel guilty or weird for feeling attacked. Let me tell you about the wife of a a destructive man. She rarely senses that she is cherished, and she may never tell him so. But she more often feels used, taken for granted, or even hated. Her children and friends keep their distance. They're too angry or scared to get close. See, what's interesting about a, a, a man that is destructive is he's always blaming other people and situations for his pain. Matter of fact, a destructive man never takes responsibility for his own sin. But he always expects you to deal with his sin. A destructive man can blow up and never comes back later and says, I am so sorry that I blew up and exploded. That was wrong of me to hurt you that way. Uh, A destructive man blows up and then leaves you to deal with his sin. He destroyed, you deal with it. Why? Because a destructive man's deepest desire is for satisfaction. His deepest desire is for things to go right. His deepest desire is for life to give him what he expects it to give him which is good. That's why a destructive man often says this. 
You've got to be kidding me. As if this is a joke, right? That life is actually going to give me this now. Because the expectation is, hey, this has got to work out good and satisfy me. When it doesn't, come on. you got to be kidding me. Another thing a destructive man loves to say is, give me a break. It can be traffic. It can be jobs. It can be a relationship. It can be anything. Matter of fact, a couple of years ago, I, I came home, as a Saturday, and I'm like, okay, I've got this plan in my mind. I've been working hard all week. I'm tired. I've got to mow the yard, but when I get through mowing the yard, I'm going to go get me this just huge burrito, and I'm going to sit down and eat a burrito and watch football all day long and talk to nobody, and that is going to satisfy me. I know it is because it's done in the past. Burrito love. Trust me, but I had to get through the yard first. So I'm going out there just thinking, you know, singing love songs to my burrito already, you know, and I pull out the lawnmower, and I have an interesting relationship with lawnmowers. All my lawnmowers are used lawnmowers because for some reason we have this spiritual gift of destroying lawnmowers at our house. I mean, I don't know, you know, like the neighbor's dogs get caught up under or something, you know, and it just, I don't know what happens, all right? So I'm out there with, with used, you know, lawnmower and you know I come up and I pull no problem I got that little bubble thing on my lawnmower that you just pump you know it just kind of primes the end come on baby okay I feel the tension getting a little you know in my chest and I'm like okay okay burrito land can't happen till after moey moey land come on you know and now I'm getting a little bit more aggressive, you know, and I'm talking to the lawnmower, what's wrong with you, you know, what has happened, why are you against me, next thing I know, and I'm not joking, I am picking up the lawnmower and slamming it down, I will teach you to destroy my day, you got to be kidding me, this cannot be happening, this is a joke, i got to spend the rest of my day fixing this lawnmower so I can mow it. I will never make it to burrito land. That's stupid, isn't it? No, it's not. (laughs) See, a destructive man is a man of rage. He's a man of anger because he hates what life is dealing out to him. Because underneath it all, he hates himself. There's an interesting thing about being in a relationship with somebody who hates themselves. Guess what they're going to give you? I don't know what kind of relationships you're in, but I'll promise you this, that whatever that person you're in a relationship with is giving you, they're only giving you 10% of what they're giving themselves. If you're getting rage from them, it's because they have raged against themselves long before you entered into the picture. Because we give out of what we have. A man who rages, a man who is destructive, is not giving himself life. He is living in a place where he is desperately looking for something to give him life. He is desperately looking for a job promotion or the situation or the deal or the person or the car or the team or whatever you want to paint the scenario for. He's looking for something to where he can take a deep breath and go, it worked. Yes. And that only lasts for a minute because after that minute is gone, he makes a whole new list of what has to work for him to be satisfied. 
So life is always in this precarious place of never working out, maybe working out, I don't know. And it's just always in this place, will the lawnmower start? Will I get to my burrito? Will it fill me up? What does the gospel have to say to that man? Oh, dude, it has so much to say to that man. Because the gospel comes to this person and says, peace isn't something you find in situations or people. Peace is what you find with the Lord. When we come to Him through the cross and all our sins are taken away, we're brought into fellowship with the divine and it fills us up with a joy that is unspeakable. It's indescribable. It's bringing us into a place of peace, a place of rest, a place where we hear these words deeply that are louder than the words we give ourselves. And that is this, you are loved. We're sons. Man. And that's a peace that surpasses all understanding. What does piety look like? (laughs) I'm a destructive man, people. I've hurt people in my life because... I'm hurt. His gospel covers that and has set me free. Oh, it gets worse than you think, but it gets better than you could possibly imagine. You see how piety is lived out in full repentance and full recognition of the depths of who I am and the beauty of who he is? It gets better. Let's keep going. Unauthentic man is a selfish man. His selfishness is not always apparent, but it reveals itself clearly in hard times. In spite of kindness and generosity that is sometimes extravagant, a bottom-line commitment to his own well-being clearly surfaces when the chips are down. See, a selfish man is terrified at the thought that he will fail. He's terrified at the thought that he would be exposed for the imposture that he believes that he truly is. He's terrified at the possibility of facing how profoundly alone he really is. And so if a man is so profoundly alone that there is nobody for me, there is no one fighting for me, that anything I get out of life I have to get myself, and I'm constantly scrambling to try to hide and not let anybody discover how lost I really am, even though everybody thinks I've got it all together, okay? The tension that that creates in the selfish person, guess what begins to happen? They give themselves permission at that point to do anything possible to give them instant relief. Anything. That's why a lot of selfish men are addicted men. Self-indulgent men. Because here's what's at the heart of a selfish man. I am all alone. They will never experience intimacy because a selfish man can never let you see him for what he really is. And that's what's required in intimacy, that you see me and that you see me and you love me enough to draw close to me. A selfish man does not believe that because a selfish man is terrified. Terrified. He lives by fear. The knot in his stomach never goes away except when he clicks on the computer and goes to that website or picks up that bottle, or whatever it else he's using for his own addictions. What does the gospel have to say to that man? This is beautiful. The gospel says, you're not alone. 
You're not alone. The peace and the hunger that you have to not be afraid anymore. You're not alone. And perfect love cast out all fear, and perfect love was displayed on the cross. When I come to the cross, the Scripture says, now I'm walking into the authenticity of what I was made for. I was never intended to live my life without God. I was never made not to have this God hole filled inside of me. I wasn't made for that. I was not made for that. What I was made for was to be in communion with God like Adam and Eve were before they fell. To walk in the garden. That's why God says, you're not alone. He also says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'll give you everything you need. He even says this, and this is beautiful. Even the cracks in who you are reveal my glory. Piety is the courage to live in repentance. And it's the courage to accept the forgiveness of His grace and live in the power of His love. Piety is honesty. Honesty to come to grips with my inauthentic, unauthentic self and live in the true identity of who I am in Christ. It's not fake. It's honesty. It's not pretend. It's real. It's not hiding. It's living my life in front of my community to be fully alive. I'm a fan of Brendan Manning. If you don't know his name, then um, Google him. Uh, he said this, as we come to grips with our selfishness and stupidity, I love that word because it kind of sums up controlling destructive selfish, stupid, which we are, we make friends with the imposter and we accept that we are impoverished and broken and realize that if, if we were not, we would be God. We are broken. Hey, guess what? We're not God. But the art of gentleness toward ourselves leads to being gentle with others. In other words, when I come to this place of accepting His grace, it fills me to where I can give grace to others. He goes on to say, to live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. You see, when I come into repentance, oh, bro, you want to talk about participating with the divine. And when I need forgiveness, you want to talk about all that I've been given for life and godliness. When you talk about I begin to live my life in this place of I'm not that guy, I'm this guy, now I face his call on my life. Wow, I'm not facing it alone. He's given me everything. This, this journey of piety brings me to participating with the divine. So we're about to go into a little time of worship. But it's a season of repentance. And we're not repenting because we need fresh forgiveness. Because if you're a believer, God has forgiven you. We're repentance. Our repentance is, Lord, we're asking you to forgive us, to restore us back to the sanity of our thinking instead of the insanity of controlled, destructive, selfish living. So will you participate with me in that? And then let's see, what does it look like for us as a community to live in the beautiful piety of being those that have been forgiven and set free? Let me pray for us. Lord, Father, I, 
I know seasons of my life, Lord, where uh, I just didn't want to see how controlling I am. I just didn't want to face how destructive I could be. I certainly uh, made a ton of excuses for my selfishness to make it look good. And it's just hard to imagine, Lord, that asking you to, to show me how controlling, destructive, and selfish I am, that there's anything good that comes from that. Except to know that you love us and that you want us to put down what is rotten and pick up what is real. So I ask right now, Lord, as we sing this song, that, Lord, you would send your Holy Spirit to search us, to see if there's any unclean way in us, and show us our own controlling, destructive, selfish ways.